0: Sweet rivers of love just before eyes and I the opinions of love I those rivers from... Passamo's here. I went into the beginning of John chapter 7. We spoke specifically about a time when Jesus was answered by his family that they obviously did not believe in him. They'd heard of some works he had done, uh, especially certain works, which I hope to get into in just a moment, but they didn't believe in him. At that time, he went up to a feast, and I mentioned the uh, Feast of Tabernacles that was mentioned, how they would go out and they would uh, take and build from twigs and different pieces of wood that they would find locally and build themselves temporary housing and live in. And it would be something of a shoddy house, and they would go, and them being living things would sit in these dead trees. And it was a good picture of the Holy Ghost working even in us to this very day. There's a lot more going on. At this point, it already happened that Jesus was a hunted man. It already said uh, in earlier chapters that he wouldn't go to Jerusalem because they were trying to kill him. They were trying to kill him because of something that had happened, namely that at the pool of Bethesda, already a place of miracles where an angel would trouble the water, that he came by and found a man who had been, for 38 years, lame. For 38 years, I'm 37, so I still have trouble imagining things as old, really old as 38, right? And this man has spent 38 years broken and uh, unmoving, unable to so much as walk, unable to so much as get to the pool, and he didn't even have a friend who would, when the waters were troubled, take him and bring him down. And Jesus had mercy on him. Why he had mercy on only him in that place of many sick, I don't know, and I couldn't tell you. It's one of those things that many people who have um, evil intentions and covetousness in their hearts might have opinions about that he should have healed everyone, shouldn't he? Well, that's obviously not our work and not our business. He came that day, and he was merciful unto someone. For that cause, there should be celebration. The whole world is full of people whom God has not had mercy on. And yet, for one sinner that repents, the angels in heaven shout his celebration. So we should be glad that this man who was bent over those 38 years, unable to, to walk and move 38 years, was given mercy by God. And yet, because he did it on a Sunday, they were angry because he violated their rules. Yeah, Sabbath day. So I'll get into that in just a little bit, but I'd like to read the next section after we did that. But first, I want to remind you of something very important. At the end of John, Pilate is going to say to Jesus, art thou a king? And Jesus answered and said, thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. I talked to you a little bit about secrets this morning, the great secrets, the secrets of God, the ones that men from the beginning of the world have missed. Well, this is one of the big secrets. It's why the Son of God himself came into the world, to bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? When he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find no fault in him at all. Which, ironically, was the most truthful thing he would say throughout the course of his interactions. That Jesus was truly innocent. And yet he would have him beaten and he would do other things that were wrong. But, not to go too far and deviate, he didn't understand what was truth. And yet he had Jesus who was there witnessing unto the truth at that very moment in front of him. I'd like to start in verse 14 of John chapter 7. It says, Now, about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? The people answered and said, Thou hast the devil. Who goeth about to kill thee? Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgments. Judge righteous judgments. Now, you see Jesus going into the congregation. i just like to remind you that, that one of the easiest verses to remember that prophesied of Jesus, Psalm 22, 22. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going for the one verse, but you're certainly welcome to if you'd like to. It says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation. Will I praise thee? Beloved, there is a time for going out and to share the word, but this here is the best place to declare the works of Jesus and his goodness and his greatness and his tender care and his mercy unto us. As Jesus did, he went into the congregation. He didn't go out into the nations while he was on earth. He eventually would send his apostles and eventually sent us. But at first he came unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is very important to note because it is a proper place for all of us to begin. We should not forget to comfort one another with these things like, with which we were comforted, with those like things that we all have in common, although slightly different. And so we comfort one another with these wonderful ways that God has been good to them. So he went and he taught, and you might say that Jesus, going and teaching, he didn't just go as one of the doctors of the law. Now you got to consider this for a moment because they're going to say, sit here, they're going to say, how does he know letters having never learned? And what they mean is, and to borrow a phrase from uh, the 1700s, Gill said he wasn't brought and one of, brought up in one of the liberal universities. I did like that; it was a comfort because it was written 300 years ago, but. Jesus wasn't brought up in the place where they were teaching the, uh, God, the Bible all the time. He actually took on a vocation where he worked with his hands. And yet, he faithfully in his own life went and studied the the law all the time. He was always in it. He was indeed the perfection of the law. So as a man, he obeyed and was always around the Bible. This lesson from Jesus is not one we should take lightly because though he had a full-time job, he still concentrated on the Word so that when the time came that he should leave his job, he was fully prepared. He was not surprised. He wasn't suddenly going to ingest this information by surprise. We know this because when he was a child, he had started. He had, his family had gone to Jerusalem and they left and They left him at the church. Now that's happened to me. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but it wasn't because I was staying behind trying to learn about it. It was because I was playing. But Jesus was um, there in that place staying and learning because he wanted to know. And he was asking wise questions even as a young man. Now the mystery of his creation is one that makes it difficult to recognize how, what parts we should obey uh, or at least look as examples that we can cling to and what parts are simply things that are out of our reach. Right, Those are two things that are true at the same time. But the example of desiring to be around the word all the time is good. And that's the thing that they're saying here. When they say letters, they mean the holy writ, holy scriptures, not just generally having the ability to read. They said that they marveled about him because he hadn't been in that place. The problem with these people was that they thought that they knew him. They thought that they knew him. I think I read this passage last time I was here, but I'm just going to turn there again. I think that this is the exact same Interchange, as happens in Matthew 13, where it says, when he came into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished and said, whence hath this man wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence hath this man all these things? But they were offended at him. But Jesus sent to them a prophet is not without honor save his own country and his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And just before this, in this chapter, uh, they said, why don't you show and prove if you're so great, why don't you go ahead and do these works here? The fact was that because they didn't believe, they couldn't see. They couldn't see in the most physical sense. He simply could not do miracles in front of them, as the Bible says. So they thought they knew him. They brought receipts, right? They, They named names and said, we know this guy. We know his history. He's a carpenter's son. And in so doing, being the firstborn son of a carpenter, they were basically calling him, he's just a carpenter. How does he know anything? How is he speaking, not just with information, but with authority? Because Jesus was different from everyone who had come before. He came with authority and right, right authority because he was the word embodied. He's going to say why and where his authority comes from here in just a minute. They, they ask this question. So he says, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Beloved, I pray that that is your answer whenever someone asks you about anything you know about God's work here on earth. Your doctrine is not your own. It's his that sent you. He sent Jesus. Jesus sent his apostles. And they've been sending men out to teach, to preach in the world since then till today. There's an unbroken stream of the gospel being shared from person to person that the Holy Ghost opened up for, for the last 2,000 years since Jesus walked on earth. It's the exact same doctrine, the exact same teaching. We know there are many false teachers. And Jesus is going to get into that in just a moment here. But from then until now, people have been teaching the exact same doctrine and where it comes from determines whether it is authoritative, whether it is true. What is truth was the question, right? Now, there's a mystery that Jesus is going to start to unfold here. And the mystery is obedience. You want to know the secret of all the mysteries of creation? They start by obeying. You know what the problem with all of mankind is? We started by disobeying. We are opposite God. And if you've ever dealt with a child, you know that once they start disobeying, they will never stop unless something steps in to fix it, right? But our situation is much more dire than that of a disobedient child, for by our sin, we received death spiritual death so that we couldn't just not obey because we built up a habit of disobedience we couldn't just not work because we built up a habit of laziness and thievery no we were dead in sin and in trespasses broken before him unable to separate to go in between the gulf that exists between us and god the gulf that in isaiah refers to as the gulf made by our own iniquity our own sin we we're separated and unable to obey And so we don't understand why it would be useful because we were so far from him. But Jesus is here going to explain that every mystery in scripture is best figured out by obedience. Why is that? Well, the first answer is because Jesus did it, right? Jesus did it. And if we say we follow him, we should follow him. He came and he didn't do anything that was of his own. Again, he's going to get into this in just a moment. I'm kind of going ahead because I'm in a bit of a time crunch, but it says here that he came and did nothing that was his own. It says he did not do, if any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine, which is of God, which whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Right? So he's saying, test it. I'm going to get back to that in just a moment. But He says here, he that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true and no unrighteousness is in him. He that seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. There's that word again, truth. Truth, which means true all the way down to their very center of person. But he says that person is true. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. But he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. He's elaborating on the two types of people. One that is selfish. One that is concentrated on their own glory. Now, you want to be careful when you read these things. Because Jesus doesn't say you having glory is bad. As a matter of fact, one of the great rewards that are promised to you is that you are glorified in him. You should want glory. Just, it's a question of the order of things. If you seek first your own glory... You're going to find yourself in the exact same place as the enemy, Satan himself. That was what he wanted. He just wanted his glory before God. And he was referred to as a murderer from the beginning. Because if that is your priority, it becomes the only priority. But Jesus came to serve him. Why? For the joy which was set before him. Because he believed God Now, we can say that it must have been easy for Jesus to believe God because they are one. And in part, that must be true. But I don't want to put myself in his shoes and say that I understand what it's like for him to go from being in the very throne room and the presence of God, from being the word of God with him at all times, to being separated from him. First, by being made like us. And then second, by taking our sin upon him and dying for us. I don't know what all he had to know and do to know that that was a good thing to do. All I know is that he obeyed and in so obeying, made a way for all of us, but also... Again, had a joy which was set before him, a joy that was in no small part because he would have us. The case I'd like to make is that obedience is the secret. Now, he's going to go on. He's going to talk about how they were confused about how this obedience should work, how it should have been uh, operated on, because they thought that obeying the law as strictly as possible was just a matter of putting things in their proper order. And in part, they were right. In part, they were right. But what they missed out on was that the desire to obey God should come from love. Remember what he said about the, on these two things, hanging the law and the prophets. You love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. The second is like it, right? What are we referred to as? How are we supposed to be known? The Bible makes it very clear. We're supposed to be known and different from the world, not because we have perfect doctrine, although we hope that's true. Not because we have proper order, not because we're an orderly church, although we certainly hope that's true. Not because we have many preachers, although we hope that that's true. Not because we have the right translation of the Bible, but because we love one another. That's That's the heart of the matter, isn't it? Because if you don't love one another, eventually your rules and your restrictions and how you're going to put things in order or your desire for your pleasures, eventually the whole ship is just going to collide in the rocks and break. There's no other way. There's only one order for things. And so we know that Jesus, in his obedience to the Father, was doing it because he loves the Father. He's going to go on and elaborate on that in great detail uh, towards the end of John. But for now, we're going to leave that off, and we'll deal with that at a later time, maybe at a later date. But it says, I'm going to go on, then we're going to go back to this past section. He says this, then he says, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keep the law? Why go ye about to kill me? That seems like a, a sudden change of pace, right? First, he's talking about how it's the glory that you seek is important. Whose message you're trying to put forward is of paramount importance, whether it's your own or whether it's someone else, whether you're a good messenger or something else. And then he suddenly says, you can none of you keeps the law that Moses gave you. And the people answered and said, thou hast a devil. Why go you about to kill me? You have a devil. Now this is in part concerning because if you know your scripture, you know that what they just did was they blasphemed the Holy Ghost. For there is a spirit in him at this time. It was so concentrated when it came down on him that it appeared as a physical thing, like a dove. And when it came down, he was filled with the Holy Ghost and had been even to this day. But Jesus here ignores them. Who goeth about to kill thee? They said. And Jesus answered and said to them, I have done one work and ye all marvel. I've done one work and ye all marvel. That one work was, as I said, the healing of the man by the pool of Bethesda. Now, The problem is that they forgot, as he tells them that they marvel, they stopped in their tracks. He just accused them of breaking Moses' law. The reason is because all broke Moses' law. And if they studied the scriptures, they would have known this. There is none good, no, not one. It says that in, I believe, the Psalms. And so they should have known that there was no way that any of them were going to be able to do that good, which was most needful to do, which is to uphold the law. And so here they are accusing him of breaking Moses' law. And he tells them no. You, you don't seem to understand. All of you are lawbreakers. But let me show you how what I did was good. I've done one work in you, Marvel. He says, Moses, therefore, gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And that's an important note. He's saying that because circumcision came before Moses brought the law. However, Moses came and brought extra rules to it. He, he gave it extra emphasis, you might say. It had to be done. And so because it predated the law, they thought it was right that they would break the law on the Sabbath day by working to do circumcision, because before the Ten Commandments were written, they already had circumcision. So they thought they were putting it in order. But you know, now that you know, that you've heard it from Jesus, that man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And they had the testimony in the scriptures that on the seventh day, God rested. And that's why we rest. So they know that that predated circumcision by a significant period of time. So it again, should have even by their own rules been put in a higher priority. But the point was not who has the law in exactly the right order. The point was to love their God with all their mind, soul, heart, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. And if that was the one chance when Jesus would be walking by the pool of Bethesda, what was more important? Jesus is going to answer the question here. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day remove, receive circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgments. What he's saying here is that he obeyed his father. His father sent him to bear witness. One of the ways Jesus was going to bear witness is that he was going to bring healing. He was going to bring healing. And so on the Sabbath day, what he was doing was obeying the law of God that came directly from heaven. He was bearing witness that he came from the father. But the way that he was doing it was caring for a man who otherwise was trapped. Was trapped on the ground. We don't think about mobility. Maybe until once we pass a certain age and we have to consider whether we are going to be able to keep driving if we're going to be dependent on someone else. We don't think about mobility until maybe you get to that later point where you might not necessarily be able to walk anymore. Now imagine if you were forced to lay on a bed beside a pool that tantalized you and you periodically would see people being able to jump in and be healed. But you had no way in. You couldn't make just a few feet. Gravity itself was your tormentor and you had nowhere to go. Well, God had seen him for all these years go through this difficulty go through the trouble of having to lay there and hope and hope and hope and God had been merciful unto him on that day why? well because the only time God ever rested was on that seventh day of creation God works today God continues to do good today does not the sun shine does not the rains come if we are going through a famine and we're going through a dry spell and we desperately need rain and that rain finally comes on Sunday do we say it broke the law? of course not because God continues to work God continues to do good Indeed, you are here, hopefully resting, but you know that when the word is delivered to you and it's work, why? Because we love you. We love you and we love God and we would desire that you would have his witness done. But I'd like to make a further case in just a moment. But the first is I'd like you to recognize the difference between Jesus and all men. Uh, Van and I like to talk about different books we like to read. And uh, one of the, he just read a book and he says, you know, he always says this, he says, no one has it all put together. No one has it all put together. All the best of writers of all the books of the world still have tiny holes and we have to remember that sometimes we elevate men who do good, and then we want to crush them when they do anything wrong. It doesn't seem right. Just as I thought about that, not all that glitters is gold. Not all that seem right is. That's what Jesus is saying here. Judge righteous judgment. Says, by your fruits shall ye know them. By your fruits shall ye know them. And Jesus makes very clear that the children of light are less wise in their own generation than the children of this world. And he gives advice that we have trouble seeing around us because our concentration is heavenly. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe because we, we are so concerned about things that have happened. I'm not sure why. But Jesus says that sometimes we have trouble discerning people. We're called to judge righteous judgment. So not all that glitters is gold, but also not all the best of men are but men at best. Meaning that there are some people who don't appear to be good and doing right in the world. but truly are. Some men who sometimes stumble. You will all stumble. It says that the just man falls seven times, but he gets back up again. There will be times when people you know fail, they fail, and sometimes you are needed, whether it be a word of comfort, whether it be a word of exhortation, whether it be that most needful word of prayer, which I would urge you all towards. We are a church, and we need one another. We need to support one another, and we need to recognize that if someone seems extraordinarily great, We have to guard our hearts and judge righteous judgments. And if it seems like someone has completely fallen and fallen away, that it might be that God is dealing with that person, and letting them have for a season those things which they were fallen into. But lastly, in the judgments that you must judge, you must judge yourself. In 1 Corinthians, it says... Ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. As we learn and we grow, we are called to be considerate of our own state, of our own actions, considerate of the things that we do and the effect they have in the world around us. But most importantly, we are called to trust and obey. For so there's no other way. In part, to be happy in Jesus, but that's not the only thing. Obedience, beloved, reveals truth. Obedience reveals truth. I don't think I've yet to meet the man or woman who knows less than they have practiced about the Bible. You understand what I mean by that? Who knows less than they have practiced about the Bible. You probably have heard of things. It's kind of like, just to take it to another category, you probably know more about cooking than you've exercised, if you enjoy cooking. You probably have gotten various ideas and not really been able to put them all to practice. Once you do, you learn much more about it. But to obey God and to obey his word is the most divine pleasure that we would rather have not had had it not been for his work in us. But now, now that we have access through the Holy Ghost, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, through the work of the gospel being delivered to us, we have access and we have opportunity to obey, to follow after what he says. And remember what Jesus says about this. He doesn't just say this, I don't just say this for means of of understanding, although that is the general point I'd like to leave you with today. But Jesus said that Blessed are you if you, having heard these words, do them. Blessed are they who do them. He doesn't say blessed are those who talk about them, although there's, I'm sure, some blessing in that. The word does not return void. But blessed are you if you do them, if you act them out. Because you were designed, your frame was built to obey God. And to, in so doing, grow in glory, grow in grace, and grow in wisdom and understanding of his word and of his person. And the more you know him, I assure you, the more you will enjoy him the more glad your life will be. So that is something of the answer to what is truth. Ryle says on this subject, it says, it teaches that one secret of getting the key of knowledge is to practice honestly what we know. Meaning, what you know, whatever it is. The Bible is full of simple ideas and simple teachings. Start there. And if you desire to swim in the deep ends of the Bible, feel free, but you will get there through exercising simple obedience. There's a reason the Ten Commandments are understandable to anyone who can so much as speak. The children can understand what it is not to lie or cheat or steal, but also to uh, do those first few, which are often forgotten, to not make uh, anything that is to replace God, to not have to um, not have any gods before him, and so on and so forth. It says, again, it teaches that the, the one secret of the key of of getting the key of knowledge, is to practice honestly what we know, and that if we conscientiously use the light that we now have, we shall soon find more light coming down into our minds. That was J.C. Ryle on that particular subject. Indeed, the plain things of religion are undeniably many. many. And so I would implore you that as Jesus here came just to obey the Father and to deliver the truth as it was given to him, to teach as he was taught, to deliver a doctrine, indeed, as he says, that was not his, but that were his that sent him. That if we follow in these footsteps of Jesus, desiring to obey above all else, beloved, we have access to that thing which was lost to us. The true wisdom of God. There's a reason why it says that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. That a man who uh, desires wisdom through desire separates and intermeddles, intermeddles with all wisdom. Through desire, beloved, I'd like to leave you with desire this morning to obey him, to follow him. Because in so doing, all knowledge, which all men do desire knowledge, to some degree or another, is accessible to you. But most importantly, that sweetest knowledge of our Heavenly Father, and our Savior, and the Spirit who now works in us in the earth. Thank you for your good attention.
1: I'm thankful for the good message that Brother John has brought forth and desire an interest in your prayers the time that we are before you. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. The whole chapter is great. We'll touch on some verses I want to start with. And then we'll back up here in a minute. Verse 11. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. I watched an interview recently of three individuals that were over 100 years old. One was 100, one was 102, one was 103. And the one thing that I noticed that they had in common is that each one of them talked about how much they enjoyed life, how much life was a blessing to them. And this chapter, although it teaches us about the frailty of man... And it teaches us and reminds us about the brevity of life. It also teaches us that life is a gift and blessing from God. And it's for us to enjoy. He says he hath made everything beautiful in his time. It's important that we realize that life is fairly brief. We need to be reminded of that sometimes because we can find ourselves getting in the mindset that we're just going to be here forever and that everything sort of just stays the same. But that's not the way life really is. And there's a lot of scriptures that teach us how that we are to remember that life is in light of eternity. Life is short and life passes by quickly. The scriptures teach us that. We can learn it from our own experience. It says in Psalm 89... Verse 47, you don't need to turn there. Just going to hit a couple of verses here in Psalm. Remember how short my time is. Remember how short my time is. In Psalm 39, it teaches us here. He says, Lord, the psalmist says, Lord, make me to know mine end. Now, there's a purpose that he has in reminding us that our life here is not forever. There's a purpose in it. And he says right here, Lord, make me to know mine end and Lord, the measure of my days, what it is. And he says, here's the purpose of it. Make me to know that my end, make me to know the measure of my days He says that I might know how frail I am. Not going to be here forever. I, I may be here today, but I may not be here tomorrow. And he says it's good that we remember how our days are measured so that we can be reminded about how frail that we are. And if we're reminded about how frail that we are, We'll value the life that we have all the more and we'll want to spend our time more wisely in a fashion that would be pleasing to God and serving to God. If we realize that we're not going to be here forever. Now, here's what he says. And then he tells us how much our how the breadth of our life he says Lord make me to know my end and the measure of my days and what it is that I may know how frail I am and he says behold thou hast made my days and then he begins to define it right there he says thou hast made my days as a hand and you know how much that is that's from right here to right here It doesn't look like it's very far, does it? He says, that's your life. I heard someone else put it this way, that when you, I enjoy, uh, it it doesn't take much to entertain me, but I enjoy going to cemeteries and looking at tombstones and imagining the lives of the individuals that are there. enjoyed it very much up at Old Brick Church. And uh, like Sister Tracy, she discovered some gold nuggets up there. Uh, within her family in, in looking at, at tombstones and names on them. But if you look at the tombstones, it'll have the date of their birth. Amen. And then it will have the date of their death. Mm-hmm. And then it has a dash in the middle. Mm-hmm. And that dash is our life. Amen. It is. It's a hand breath. It's from here to here. So he's reminding us that our life... Even if we live to be 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years old, it passes really, really quickly. He says, Make me to know that it's how frail I am. Make me to know that it's a handbreadth and my age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man in his best state is altogether vanity. We have. Uh, in in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, it talks about that we are to redeem the time. Remi- when it says redeem, it means that if you've been given something, you use it. You cash it in. You take the value of it. I, I, I'll tell you, this is a, uh, a story that I remember when I learned what redeemed meant. Uh when I was a little boy, my grandmother gave me a job of putting uh, uh, the stamps that you would get at the grocery store in this book, and you'd lick them, and you'd put them in this book, and she'd get all these books of stamps, and I don't even know if they do that anymore, but uh, s green stamps, Gold Bond stamps, and she'd get all these stamps, these books of stamps, and then she'd find something that she wanted, like a toaster or an iron or Or something like that. And she would redeem those stamps and trade them in for something that was of value to her. And right here he says that we are to redeem. We've been given the time that God's given us. Whether it's 70, 80, 90 years. And he says that we are to redeem it. That means we're to take full use of it. We're to cash it in and we're to get full benefit of that time that God has given us right here on this earth. So he says, make me to know how frail I am. There are benchmarks that come in our lives that remind us of different things and bring us back and sort of bring us in check with reality. Um, about a month ago, month and a half ago, a dear friend of mine, that, uh, the first person that I met when I went to the church in Lubbock, I was 15 years old and, and, um, uh, it, it was a lady that was walking in at the same time that I walked in, and she looked about my mother's age. I, I sat down beside her in the church. I wanted to, uh, didn't want folks to think that I was there by myself and that I wanted them to think that I was with somebody, and so I sat with her, and every week I would sit with her. And she was a great encouragement, wrote letters of encouragement to me through the years. And about a month ago, a month and a half, I realized that, Uh, got the word that she had passed away. And I thought of all the wonderful times and encouragement that she had given. And I thought that's almost the end of an era. Then uh, a little over a week ago, I received a report that a dear friend of mine that we grew up in the Lubbock church together, my pastor's daughter. She was younger than I am. And Uh, She passed away at 57 years of age as a result of COVID complications on top of other illnesses that she had had, and and we'd grown up together, we'd worship together, we we sang hymns together, we sang at funerals together, we sang at weddings, we, we just enjoyed wonderful times of worship and fellowship through the years, and then her life was so quickly taken. Today, my mother turns 80 years old. This morning, I got up and at 2 o'clock in the morning, I wrote a tribute to my mother. It was inspired by the tribute that Brother Danny wrote to Sister Tracy on her recent birthday. A wonderful tribute that uh, both Brother Danny did and Brother Justice. Outstanding. It was an inspiration to me. I think more of my mother at being 35 years old with a bouffant hairdo. Anybody know? You can look that up and Google what that means, but uh, the big hair, than I do at 80 years old. Sometimes I'll be talking to someone and re- make a reference to my mother, and they'll Say you mean your mother's still alive, and I think, well, how old do they think I am? You know, I want to be like uh, Sister Hay's daughter was. Uh, Sister Hay's daughter was eighty-two, and and her mother was uh, still alive, almost a hundred. Sister Barbara Dixon was uh, uh, almost a hundred, and her daughter was eighty-three, and so I'm I'm kind of signing up for that, whether it happens or not, but. The point being that life passes fast. Therefore, make full use of it today. So much of the time we find ourselves living in the future. When the kids are grown and on their own, we're going to start really enjoying life. When we can finally reach the retirement years, we're going to travel and we're going to have a good time and we're really going to enjoy life. I've known individuals that they worked really hard and, and they saved and they planned for retirement and, 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 and were excited about it and they get to retirement and then within a short time one or both pass away so the point being and 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 James tells us how we should view life James says it like this right here go to now Ye that say. Now, I didn't write that. And if I was writing it, I wouldn't write it that way. But that's the way it is. And it's right. And I'm wrong. But he says, go to now ye that say today and tomorrow go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. He teaches us a a, a point right here. He says, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. He's teaching us the lesson right here that you have today. You may not have tomorrow. You may not have next year. You may not have your mother or your father or your grandparent a year from now, but you have them today. And if we realize that today is the day that we have and God made today for us and gave us the life to be used for today, it probably will make a difference in how we live. You know what? There might be some things that we'd do different. If we've got some relationships that maybe we need to fix. If we we need to make amends in some areas, rather than put it off and say, I'll do it someday, we probably ought to do it today. Look what he says. He says, whereas ye know not what shall be on the mark. He just simply says, you don't know what tomorrow holds. You might or might not be here. You may not be in the health. You may not have your mind. But you have it today. He says, "Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life?" We saw a while ago where it said it's but a handbreadth. He says now here he describes it. He says your life is a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then it vanisheth away. Another place, our life is described as a shadow. The shadow is there for just a moment you move or you change or you look back and that shadow is different or the shadow is gone. He says, "For even it is a vapor that appeareth for a little time then it vanisheth away for that ye ought to say." He says, "Here's the lesson right here in this, for that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that." Verse 17 says, therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. He's just simply saying right here, your life is short. You need to use it for the glory of God. Uh, If you know to do good, do good and do it today. Now, let's look at the chapter here. Great chapter. Great chapter. To everything there is a season simply teaches us right here that somebody else is in charge of it. We get to thinking we're in charge, we're not. And that's what this chapter reminds us right here. To everything there is a season. Who is it that's in charge of the seasons? It's the Lord. I'm not in charge of it, you're not in charge of it, but the Lord's in charge of it. He says to everything, there's a season to every purpose under heaven. He said there's a time to be born. Mm -hmm. Who's in charge of that? It's the Lord. He says there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. There's a time to kill. There's a time to heal. There's a time to break down and a time to build up. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. He says there's a time to get and there's a time to lose. There's a time to keep and there's a time to cast away. He's he's talking about the different stages and experiences of life. And then he comes down to us here in just a minute. And he teaches us that in all of the stages and experiences of life. Life is a blessing and a gift from God and enjoy it. Brother John and Sister Mallory, you've got these little kids right now. Enjoy it to the fullest. Won't always have them like that. But you do today. It's a blessing. You take life where it is right now. Don't live in the future. You may not have it. But you do have it today. And you make full benefit of it today. Whether it's a time that you're just totally on the mountaintop all the time. And that's what he's saying right here. There's some seasons that you're going to be in the valley. And there's some seasons that you're going to be on top of the mountain. And there's going to be a whole lot in between. And he says you realize that God is the one of those seasons. God is still the God of the valley and God is still the God of the mountaintop and God is still the God of everything in between. So therefore, you rejoice, maybe not in those experiences, but you rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Doesn't say rejoice in all the... Experiences themselves, some things are not don't feel good, some things hurt. But even when you're going through a hurtful time, you can rejoice in the Lord. Probably this message just meant for me and nobody else. But I just need to be reminded to live life today to the fullest. And live it for the Lord. Don't be overcome with the discouragements of life. Don't be overwhelmed with all that's around you. Don't look back upon your life and be overcome with the disappointments in your life and the regrets in your life. Jesus Christ took care of that. It's not laid to your charge by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ removed that and it's not laid to your charge Therefore, you shouldn't lay it to your charge. And don't let Satan lay it to your charge. Because Jesus Christ took care of that. You can't go back. You can't turn the clock back. But what you can do is start today. And live it for the Lord. And live it to the fullest. He says he's made everything beautiful in his time. There's an old gospel song. It was a familiar favorite of the Chuckwagon Wagon Gang. Anybody ever heard of the Chuck Wagon Gang? That'll tell you how old you are. Title was called Beautiful Life. He says right here, there's a time to love, a time to hate, a time of war, a time of peace. What profit hath he that worketh wherein he hath labored? He says, I've seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. He hath set the world in their hearts so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. You can't know fully the mind of God. You can read his word and it tells you an awful lot about God. But you can't figure out the timing that God has. God's the one that's in charge of that. And by the way, he designed it in such a way that it gives him the glory. It's for his glory and it's for our good. That's how he designed it. He says, I know that there is no good for them but for a man to rejoice. And to do good in his life. He's saying, you take the life that God's given you and you do the good that God shows you to do and you rejoice in it. Mm -hmm. It's all right to enjoy life. In fact, you should enjoy life. Your life is a gift from God and you should enjoy the life that God's given you. Don't put it off and think I'm going to enjoy it down the road. Or I'm going to enjoy it when I get all my problems fixed or when I get all my bills paid or when I get uh, everything taken care of, then I'll enjoy life. You enjoy it today. And by the way, not only do you enjoy life, but you enjoy those individuals that God's put in your life. You enjoy them today as well. may not always have them, but you have them today. So you enjoy it. Look what he says. He says it's good for man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And then he says, verse 13. And also, Brother Justice, it's 1157. (laughs) He knows where I'm coming from and where I'm going. (laughs) All right. We'll wrap it up with this. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. He doesn't say enjoy it because you work so hard to get it yourself. He doesn't say that you can pat yourself on the back. He says you enjoy the fruit of your labors. Because the fruit of your labors is a gift from God. What you have, not because you're so smart, not because you're so strong, not because you're so wise. But it's because God has blessed you with his gift. And he says, you take it and you enjoy it. It's a beautiful life. You live it and enjoy it to the fullest. God bless you.